Well, this morning, uh, we have been traveling through a series, a, a life-defining series. You know, it's interesting sometimes when you come to church, I don't know, you know, what topic do you expect to interact with? You know, there's, there's topics out there. Churches will preach them from time to time. And, 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 I, and I get this. I'm, I'm a person standing in front of an audience of people who've got a bunch of different things going on in their lives. Kind of helpful if I could land in a space that you're paying attention to and you're kind of like, hey, I'm so glad that guy talked about that this morning because that, yeah, I've been wanting to hear something about that. You know, the Bible pulls out this terminology and then defines us with it. So I keep pulling us into this word disciple because it may be too small in our lives. You know, maybe, maybe you're an engineer, maybe you're a doctor, maybe you're a wife, or maybe you're a teenager, and you've got another label that's functioning in your world right now. But Jesus put a label on you, and he called you a disciple, and it defines your life. So it's a big, important terminology. We've interacted with that term for a number of messages now, and and we get to this moment in John, and Jesus is going to do something here. In John chapter 17, Jesus is going to pray. He's going to pray the longest prayer in the New Testament. He's going to contribute more thought and more content to what could be and should be in New Testament prayer than we can benefit from perhaps anywhere else in Scripture. But I started the message by asking the question, why pray? And I'd love to, to think that everybody's going to curl their brow and go, come on, man. Come on. You know the answer to that. But our, our life kind of gives away the fact that that's a, that's a real life question, isn't it? You tried to pray this week? Did you try to pray through a circumstance that is confusing to you, hard to define, hard to understand? Have you prayed about something for the 160th time? That still hasn't happened. Right? I mean, why pray is a live question for us. We feel so off balance. Some of us who have been saved for, for decades are still trying to figure this thing out called prayer. But there's a certainty in the Savior that does not sound at all like that. When he comes to pray, there is certainty here. It is not a question mark. It is not filled with strangeness. He doesn't go off to pray on his own and come back like, I don't know, guys. Went and prayed, but who knows? There's something that the Son of God knows about prayer that feels like it fits in everything in an important and vital and critical way. So what you get from Jesus in John chapter 13, we begin that last evening together and he teaches through the essentials of being servants. He's going to wash the feet of his disciples. He's setting in place the, the discipleship program. And at the center of it is what we've been spending most of our time studying in John 15. The center of it. I am the vine. You are the branches. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. That you would go and bear fruit. And that that fruit would prove that you're my father's disciples. And that fruit would remain. So there's this discipleship program that gets stood up in John 15. In John 16, Jesus makes them aware that the Holy Spirit is coming. He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He's going to lead you into the truth. The little pieces of truth that you're trying to hold on to that I've taught you while I've been with you. He's going to lead you into that and lights are going to come on. And it's going to revolutionize your life. 
And Jesus gets to the end of this dissertation, if you will, on discipleship. And in John chapter 17, what does he do next? Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, I think these words would be the last evening that he was with his disciples. He lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, some of your translations said he prayed. Now here's what's really interesting about this moment. Right? You know, maybe today you guys watching the game, um, there's these moments in sports and they really capture our attention, right? When they stick a microphone on the player, he's mic'd up, you know. I've always wanted to, you know, have access to whatever Sean Payton was saying to Drew Brees when, you know, Drew was listening in, in his helmet. What, what is Sean saying in that moment right now, right? We want to we hear that. In fact, I, I had somebody give me um, tickets to sit on the floor for a Pelicans game once. And you got to hear the players interact with each other and call plays and, and direct traffic. I mean, it was intriguing. I mean, and the game was going on, but I was more interested in what are you guys saying to each other? Cause I'm usually sitting way up there next to the air conditioning duct in the ceiling. And I can't hear a thing you're saying down there, but I'm just curious. Well, here you have Jesus last night together, discipleship program set in front of them. And then he gets mic'd up and he talks to the father and his conversation gets recorded. We go behind the scenes with father and son as discipleship launches and we get to hear and listen in. But, but don't overlook something profound, yet something so simple. Jesus has been three years with his disciples. He's been modeling what a disciple is going to be and the program that they're going to walk in. He takes time that last evening together. A big chunk of John is devoted to it. And before he launches this discipleship program. He does something very, very simple. He prays. I don't know what more you're looking for. But the Son of God, with all that he knows, with all that he understands, stops in this moment and he simply prays. So my question for us to why pray? Well, I have to start with if it's, if it's sufficient for the Son of God to venture into the next thing in the kingdom of God. He knows this is the purpose of God. He's already explained that to him. But the purpose of God is not going to go unprayed for and unprayed about. But I want to approach this a little bit differently today. We've talked a lot about prayer. It's one of our hills to die on here as a church. And I want to answer that by saying, then pointing this out to us today, saying this. Why pray? Well, because there's more to life than meets the eye. That's why you pray. There's a lot of natural forces that you and I are going to strategize, think through, schedule, put in our planner, interact with, get some information about, write a check for. But there's more going on than anything that we just did is going to be touched by. There's more. There's more to life than meets the eye. Let me unpack that thought before I jump into the passage today. Right? Here's Paul's explanation for the world that you and I live in. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says it this way. <clears throat> but as it is written, 
what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love him. Now you guys have read this verse before. It is God taking us behind the scenes of the reality of our lives. And he's saying, hey, there's, there's things for the eyes. There's things for the ears. There's things that enter the human intellect. You and I think a certain way. We engage things. We make plans. But then God turns on and says, just, just want to inform you. That is a realm in which you live. And then there's another dimension to your life that no eye has seen and no ear has heard. And it's not intellectual. It's something more than that. And that's just as real as anything that your eyes can see, that your ears can hear, and that you and I can conceive a plan about. And we might need, we might need, if all we're doing is surveying with our eyes and listening with our ears and coming up with a plan, we might need to realize we are missing out on the biggest, most important parts of making plans and making decisions in our lives because they fit in this category. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit coming to us differently. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also... No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Now he's picking up, we didn't study John chapter 16, but he's picking up. John 14's got a little piece of this too. He's picking up the last evening of Jesus' promise that the Holy Spirit's going to play a unique role in your life. And Paul's picking that up. The Spirit who is from God. Why? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now listen to this contrast and be warned by it. I take this to heart. I hope you will as well. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, before you go drawing a bold, bold line, the natural man, this is clearly an indictment of those void of the Spirit. It is clearly that. It is clearly a reminder to every one of us that not everybody, even in this room or watching the live stream today, has the equipment to do what's in this verse. You don't come into this world with the Spirit of God in you, revealing the things of God to you. You do not. You come into this world needing the Spirit of God. You come into this world void of the Spirit of God. You come to this world attached to the race of Adam, spiritually cut off from God. And what we need is the Spirit to come to us and begin to reveal these things to us. But 
lest I describe any of us here as beings who have the Spirit. So therefore, we could never be natural-minded. Does anybody think that's true? You know, we are the righteousness of God in Christ. The Bible says that. We are. Could anybody just raise your hand real quick if you didn't sin this past week? But you are the righteousness of God, right? There's this massive thing that's true about you. But you're telling me you sinned this past week? How did that happen? Well, Keith, read the Bible. It happens. It's part of being a Christian in a fallen world. It's part of the deal's not completely finished yet. So, so you mean I could have the Spirit of God and still be natural-minded? Yeah, I could. And I need to be mindful of that and careful about that. There was a day in King David's life that gets preserved for us from 1 Chronicles chapter 21. So if you can turn there with me. 1 Chronicles 21 was a day of natural-mindedness for the king of Israel as he was leading God's people at a critical moment, a critical moment in his own life, a critical moment in the juncture of the story of Israel as well. Let me just set the story in front of us. First Chronicles chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. And Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord the king, all of them, my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. He did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering. For the king's command was abhorrent. To Joab. But God was displeased with this thing. And he struck Israel. I'm not going to go into the striking that God did, but God is going to end up offering David a deal. You can have a three month sentence, you can have a three year sentence, or you can have a three day sentence. David, you choose. But the thing that I want to tap into here is there's a moment in which what God makes clear is he is not happy with David's leadership in this moment. And you got to get the moment here, right? You know, the, the Bible happens in real time with real people in real spaces, just like you and me, right? You're going through real time, real space, real things are going on. They've touched your life a certain way, had some events this past week or this past year. Stuff is all adding together to bring us to a moment where we're going to interact with this. So what's going on right here? 
But let, let me dial you into to First Chronicles chapter 21. All right, Chronicles, probably not a book that a lot of us are reading, spending a lot of time in, uh, in the Old Testament. It, it's, it's written in about 538 BC, which puts you on the other side of the Babylonian exile, right? Remember God's people, they all go off in the Babylon and they're in exile for 70 years. And on their return, Chronicles gets written to sort of get them back on track to remind them of where they've come from. Isn't that a good thing that God does to us? Sometimes when you get drifted from God, you just need a good dose of the word of God. That's what you need. Just get it back in your system. Get it back in your life. Well, that's what God does with them. He has the chronicler record particular things. So I know sometimes we're reading the Bible and it's hard to keep up with that. I encourage you guys, especially if you're kind of new to the Bible, get you a good study Bible. Get, get the ESV study Bible. It's an excellent study Bible that you can get. I'm going to quote from it just to wet your whistle a little bit. All right, so here's what the ESV study Bible would say about this particular book. First Chronicles begins with several genealogies. As a matter of fact, it's nine chapters of genealogies. So you can read through those quick because I don't think there's a test later. Uh, with special emphasis on David and Solomon. The chronicler moves next to the history of the kingdom under David, stressing David's deep interest in worship and his detailed plans for the construction of the temple. So if you open First Chronicles, you get nine chapters of genealogies. And then you're going to get some chapters interacting when David became king. So quickly, the story moves to David as the king. Then you're going to get a couple of chapters of David, his passion for the worship of God, the fact that it's not okay with him that the ark is somewhere else besides in the center of life for the people of God. Let's go get the ark and let's bring it back here. And while he's thinking about that ark, he starts saying, you know, I live in this glorious place. I got a great house to live in. God's presence dwells in a tent. That's not all right. God's the centerpiece of what we're about. Worship needs to mean something to us. I want to build God a house. And so he begins to think about establishing worship at an even greater level amongst the people of God. And then we we spend a few chapters recognizing the reality. Hey, David, you're in a land where battles still have to be fought. There's Ammonites here. There's Syrians here. The Philistines are having to be fought. So all this is happening. The, the guy who wants to reestablish worship, build this great house for God. And you guys know the story. God's going to tell David, you're not the man to build a house. But he is the man to prepare to build a house. So that gets you to chapter 21. Chapter 22 on is David preparing to build a house. He's setting things in order. He's getting all the, the service stuff together. He's getting the people who are going to serve. He's gathering resources. And then right in the middle of that is chapter 21. And it starts with this word. Then. Right then and there with those ingredients in place in David's life. Don't overlook those ingredients. Here's a man on, on one bookend he has come through wars and battles, right? We've talked about this before. There's, there's a fight in faith that's going to take place. There are things that genuinely threaten the next step you're going to take in the kingdom of God. There were enemies in the land who threatened everything David could think of about worship. The idolatry of the land could swallow it up, and he knew that. And he'd experienced these wars. So coming up to chapter 21, there's this battles to be fought, enemies that we're vulnerable to face. And then there's the dream of this man. 
to establish worship like it's never been before for our people. And that's going to be the next project he's going to venture into, this massive project. What does David do in that moment? He hires an accountant and he checks his resources. He reaches for the natural things of his life and he says, can we do this? Can we pull this off? This, I mean, this is a massive project, right? There is a huge amount of resources that's going to be needed to build the temple as God is going to reveal it to David. And then he's got all these enemies in the land. They could come and mess things up in a moment. How are we going to do this? So there's a little bit of pressure in this moment. There are dreams here. He is standing at the doorway of David's defining moment. And there are threats here as well. And he does what any one of us could do. He counts his own strength. What kind of strength is available to me right now? And he takes a census. If you're a king, you typically took a census for one of two reasons. We're either about to go to war, and I need to know how many hands I've got to fight these battles. Or we're about to do something big, and I need to tax everybody and get some funds available to build what we're about to build. And that's what he does. Ken Barker and Colin Berger in their commentary say, A census was not in itself wrong. The God-directed census in Numbers 1 and 26. But on this occasion, David seems to have ordered this because he was placing his trust in multiplied troops rather than in the promises of God. And God, remember, God is displeased and God is breaking out in judgment against David and the people. I don't think this is a moment for those of you who are accountants. I don't think this is God giving away that he really doesn't like you accountants and the work that you do. I don't think that's what's happening here, right? The thing that displeased the Lord was not counting. It was trusting. Trusting is always a big deal to God. Faith is always a big deal to God. It's why Satan comes after that. Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you. I've prayed though that your faith would not fail. That what you look to, put your hope in and trust in, that that would stay in the right place. That's what God's concerned about here. And the second any of us begin to lean into, depend upon the natural pieces of our lives, things going a certain way, people being on our side, our bank accounts being a certain size, the type of job that I can have, having the right education so I can have the right life, all those things set us up for hoping in our own strength. And the second you do that, you do realize what's coming next. huh? Massive doses of fear. Are coming next. Insecurity is coming next. Noticing that somebody else seems to have it better than you, so jealousy is coming right after that. And then, Lord forbid, that you are successful at what you do, which David was. David was very successful. So for him, pride potentially is on the list because you start counting your resources and you start counting the victories that your resources and your smarts and your abilities are all producing. And if you're not scared to death that you might run out of resources, you become arrogant that look at, look at what I can do. 
That's what Charles Spurgeon says about David. He says he had gotten proud. He had begun to depend upon the number of his people. In truth, it was a large population under his sway, five millions or more. And he, who had been a shepherd lad, who in his early youth had trusted in his God, now, thinking himself a great man, somewhat in the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar, begins to say, behold this great kingdom that I have gathered and founded. Joab, go out and get me the numbers. Well, there's an interesting thing that this then word, that's the moment, then what happens next? And this is massively important. This informs why do we pray? This informs the fact that life is more than what meets the eye. David looked at a situation and with his eyes, he needed to count his resources. But look at what he didn't see with his eyes. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. In this moment, there's more than natural stuff going on. In this unique moment in history, in David's big moment on the stage of life, there's more going on here than just natural things. The devil is in this story. He's a real character in this story. When we read a little bit further... Uh, David is going to also see the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a sword drawn. How do you know he wasn't seeing that when he was taking a census? There are unseen things in our world. They're real. Do we still believe any of this stuff? I mean, really? We can put everything in a test tube these days. You can run an app on your blood sample. Do we still believe that there are unseen forces, forces in this world that actually do touch the life that we're living? Now, now stop and think for a moment. Think, think whenever it was that you just got beside yourself, your emotions, your feelings, life's gone sideways. What, what did you think about in that moment? Who, who are you having a mental argument with in that moment? Probably some person, right? Probably some set of circumstances. And you and I as Christians could live all of our moments just trying to figure out how to get that person to align with this issue and how to get this thing to stop and how much money do we have? And and can we pull this off? And overlook, Satan is in the story. A real being. And can I just say, when he shows up, the story changes. Can everybody amen me on that one? Can you stop acting as though every day is exactly the same? Well, no, no, no. Can I just tell you, when Satan shows up at your address, this day is different. Sin was present before, but the inciter of sin just showed up. You think sin was hard yesterday? And it was, because we live in a fallen world, and it's kind of engrafted in us, and we're overcoming that by the grace of God. But in this story, the inciter of sin shows up, and he's pretty good at inciting. F.F. Bruce says, here it is, Satan's incitement. He rose up against him, he brought to mind, hence he tempted him. It is Satan's incitement that accounts for David's persistence. 
in taking the census in spite of Joab's objections. This is, this is David's right-hand man. This is the guy who's been making it happen for David left and right. David thinks something through. God's put somebody in his life to say, David, no, no, don't do this. Why, why are you doing this? And David doesn't listen. In a moment like that with somebody that you've been the Joab, walk with people and all of a sudden they're just their life just comes off the rails and they're just like they're just pursuing something that they just never pursued before it's like why are you going down this road what has happened to you and you come to them and you interact with them and you mount as you should every argument Joab has an argument he comes to argue with David no David no this is why we don't do this and it was abhorrent to him he did it anyway out of submission to the king but he hated the whole idea. And he brought his best shot to David. But David didn't listen. Why didn't David listen? Because Satan had incited him. Can you stop to think when there's people in your life that they're coming off the rails, that all of a sudden they're becoming a person they were not? Have you stopped and, and looked spiritually at what's going on? Or are you just seeing the natural forces? You're only seeing that guy's personality. There he goes. I knew you were going to do that because you do that kind of stuff all the time. This is not the first time you've done that. And we just go after it like all we see is natural forces around us. No, no, no. The Bible just took us behind the scenes. Why did he do this? Because Satan incited him. You ever think that way about your spouse? Uh, your children who have gone in a bad direction? Is it just an argument with them in the natural? Or is something spiritual going on here? Listen, you're either going to use your words toward God or you're going to use your words towards people. But if all you see is natural forces, you will argue people until their ears bleed. And Joab didn't win an argument. Michael Wilcox says, there are dark mysteries here without warning or preamble satan comes on the scene <clears throat> only at the end of the new testament is he fully identified as the dragon the serpent the devil and the deceiver right? we know something much more about satan than they knew back then he comes on the scene can you just stop and factor that into this week there will be moments where you and I are going to encounter a circumstance where Satan has come on the scene. Let me tell you, how important is that for me? Because I know I'm immediately in, in over my head. I appreciate so much of what the New Testament says about who I am as a Christian. But that dude takes people down left and right. And I'm just not impressed with me. He'd take me down. And I respect the, the reality that that can happen. That's going to make me pray, isn't it? I'm just not going to reason my way through this. I'm just not going to use my own force. I, you know, take a census all you want, Keith. Figure out all the resources you have available to you. They're, they're not going to get me past Satan. I'm going to need something from God. And I'm going to have to get that by praying. There's some supernatural elements in this passage. God shows us there's more in, in 1 Chronicles 21 
There's Satan stood against Israel. Then in verse 9, and the Lord spoke to Gad, right? Remember, the, the Holy Spirit's given us to give us revelation about the mind of God and the purposes of God. He reveals these things to us. Well, that's who Gad is in this story. Gad is a seer. He's a prophet. He's going to bring to David an understanding. David doesn't catch this without some help. David, you're about to be offered a deal. You've got three choices to make. God is not pleased with what's going on. All that was a revelation to David that Gad brought. David's seer saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. And then there's one more thing that David's going to be allowed to see. Oh, Lord, help us to see. In verse 16, it says, David lifted his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. And in his hand, a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then, then, this is a different moment now. Then David said, or David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. Here is David in one moment, and he sees in the natural. And what does he do when he sees in the natural? He takes a census. Here is David in another moment, and he sees in the spirit. Then he starts to pray. You see the difference between why you and I pray? Why pray? Well, if I stare out at life and all I see is natural forces, amen, I'm with you. Why pray? Check your bank account. Check your watch. Put something on the calendar. Talk to that person. Talk to them again. Use all the resources that you have to make this thing turn out the way you want. But there's a moment when you're going to see that there's a Satan in the story. There's a revelation from God. There is judgment coming. There's an angel involved in this situation. When you see all that, then the elders decide, I think we need to pray. Right, can I indict everybody who's got an ounce of leadership in the room here today? Husbands walking with your wives. Moms and dads leading your families. Elders leading the church. Small group leaders leading your small groups. Ministry leaders leading your ministry areas. We need a then moment in our lives. We need a moment where our eyes get open to what's really going on in the spirit. And we stop simply moving natural things from one room to the next. One argument to the next. One activity to the next. We see something from God that makes us realize there's more going on here. And I'm going to need to do what this man did. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces and David said to God. Remember, Jesus says something to the Father. David now says something to God. This is what intercession sounds like from him in this moment. Was it not I, Lord, who gave command to number the people? It is I who sinned. And done a great evil. Up until this moment, that's been ignored. Joab tried to tell you don't do that. That got ignored. But now, a revelation has come. And prayer gets fostered in his heart. And now this man is humble. 
And he is confessing what he has done. It is I who have sinned and done great evil, but his sheep, what have they done? Now he's got an argument with them. This is a great lesson, right? If you're an intercessor, you're an arguer. You stand before God and you make an argument and God is pleased with that. Argue with God when you pray. That's what he does. These sheep, Lord, what have they done? Please let your hand, oh Lord, my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people, right? That's, that's intercession. That's petition. That's asking God. But, but look where it came from. When do you start praying? When you see a big angel with a sword stretched out over your life. When you recognize God is the one behind the scenes working and he could devastate everything about this world in an instant. That was the deal offered to him. David was wise enough to pick the one that God would be merciful in when he had his choices. There's something else kind of hidden here as well. Michael Wilcock goes on and says, there's something mysterious too about this sin of David's. Perhaps the sin would lie in imagining that it was the numbers of able-bodied men of military age, which constituted the strength of the state. Whereas in fact, each individual, the nation itself, its wars and its very destiny are all in the hands of God. Not in my resources, not in my strength, not in things I can count. They're all in the hands of God. So, so it makes sense that I'd be praying from the get-go. I'd be looking to God just like Jesus was before the discipleship project gets launched. He prays because its future is in the hands of God. Jesus knew that. David finally is figuring that out. But Wilcox says there is something mysterious to about this sin of David's, which is the third hidden thing I want to point out. I wrote it in your outline. There's more here than meets the eye. There are dark, mysterious forces, and there is something problematic hidden in David's heart at work here. There's not just heavenly reality is taking place around us. David doesn't know his own heart. Hidden from him is his tendency to look to natural strength to do what's next. He doesn't seem to know that about himself. And T. Wright says, counting can be a dangerous thing to do, not least because it can suggest You think you can control your future and or that you are trusting in your resources. Joab's reaction points in just such a direction. God is the one who will look after the people's future. Calculating the resources that will make that possible is to stop trusting God. David, did you know that was in you? Did you know that Satan could come along and he could find that button inside of you and press it? Satan incited David. Don't read that too fast. So what does that tell you? 
there was something incitable in David. Which means for each and every one of us, that's, that's true. There are things in us that are incitable. There are things in us that uniquely are about us that the devil knows when he shows up at my address, press that button. Don't waste your time pressing that one. He never seems to respond to that one. Press that one. When you, when you meet the devil in scripture, he's very specific and he's in a particular moment, right? When we get these kinds of revelations, he's very specific, right? He interacts with Eve in a very specific way at a particular moment. He interacts with Job in a little different way than Eve's life. He's going to dismantle Job's life. Job seems to have a different set of buttons to push. And he's going to push every last one of them on Job. When Jesus faces the tempter in the wilderness, he has particular buttons that are being pressed, right? I mean, we talked about this before. I don't think Satan's going to show up and offer all of us the kingdoms of this world. Don't think you're going to be tempted with that. Just don't think that's on your resume. But for the one who is king, it's on his so when I show up to Jesus, hmm, what button could I press? Oh, how about the kingdom button? He's a king. He would like kingdoms. There's things about us, in us. Do you, do you know what buttons are in you? Do you know how Satan might show up in your life? Right? You and I live in a flammable existence, if I can say it that way. It's a flammable existence. There are two good things to know about flammable existences. It's good to know something about the creature holding the match. It's good to know something about the flammability of the creatures. Right? So when Satan gets around us, there are certain things that get incited. And have you noticed they're not all the same things from person to person? Do you know what incites you? If Satan shows up this week, do you know what he's probably going to go after? Have, have you learned that about yourself? I, I fear that we are better students of everybody else around us than we are of ourselves. I can tell you what's wrong with everybody in my life. I won't do it, but I could. <laughs> Can I, do I have much to say about me? Am I aware of me? Because when I go to face the battle, the devil's coming to incite me. He wants to figure out what gets Keith off the rails. What gets him to respond? What's going to get his attention? What jazzes him up? What is he excited about? What bad experiences have you had? What trauma is in your life? What did you swear, maybe not even using words, that I will never let that happen to me again? Something you grew up with. Something that happened to you when you were younger. And Satan knows that's a tender spot for you. And he's coming. And he is not playing fair. 
And he doesn't care how painful that was to you in your past, where it came from, and who was the source of the hurt. Can, can I just tell us, without being unsympathetic, trauma is real? Experiences in life are horrible? But there is a God who wants us to find some understanding to be brought to those things about our lives. We, we need some understanding about who we are, what's happened with us. And then we need healing to take place in our lives. And then God desires for us to experience greater freedom in those areas. So when something shows up in our life that answers to none of those things, it's just a bad experience, it's memories, it's resentment, it's, it's bitterness, it's confusion, it, it's outrage, feelings over the past, and there isn't any sense of bringing understanding from God to that moment, seeking God for healing. Listen, healing, and the fact that the Bible puts it on display, actually tells us you are in pain right now. You are bleeding out. It's not a denial that you've gone through something in your life, but it's a summons for that to become something different. Something that's healing. Something that then some greater freedom can come into that category. Can I, can I just tell you, whatever's, all of us have a past. All of us have bad players in our past, have bad experiences, some just worse than others. But understanding and healing and freedom need to find those places. If you never discover that, can I just tell you, there's a devil out there who's showing up over and over again and pressing the same buttons over and over and over again. And, and your tendency will be to think everybody else is to blame. Everybody else is doing this to me. And, and you know what? Everybody around you will have done something in the last two weeks to justify those feelings. They will have let you down. They will have disappointed you. They would have said something that's just like what they said a year ago. Here we go again. That script is everywhere. But, but you're functioning out of your woundedness. And that thing now, instead of being this big, it's this big. But did you know why it's this big? Because the devil keeps pressing the same button about you. You're incitable in that area of life. And listen, if it's not something of the past, it could be some eager ambition, something that we crave, some sense of accomplishment, some sense of reward and significance, that that thing operates in me. And anybody who gets in the way, anybody who threatens my stage and my ability to make big of me, boy, I, we have, we're going to have a conflict. We're going to have problems. So I've got a life littered with problematic interactions over and over and over again. And again, do I notice any of that is in me? Or do I just notice you are really, really in the way and really irritating and not noticing I've got a button in me and there's a devil out there who would love to incite me. David has an interesting phrase here. Verse two, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. I'm guessing for David, there's a number that if you're on this side of the number, I'm going to feel good. But if I'm on this side of the number, I'm not going to feel good. That, wouldn't that be a, a good guess? There's a number this guy's looking for. All right, most of us aren't kings, and we're not going to go off to war, nor do we have to raise taxes to build a giant temple. 
But we're watching numbers, aren't we? You got any numbers that make you feel like, this is going to work out? Because the stock market numbers are right. Because the inflation numbers coming down a certain, oh man, I'm confident about the future now. Or I check my bank account and yes, we can afford to send the kids to that school so that they can get that prized education so that their whole life will then open up to them. I'm feeling good about the numbers. Bring the number to me so that I may know it. Be very careful what you want to do with your numbers. Because there's more to life than what meets the eye, right? All right now, here's where this falls, and I, wanna, I want us to pray in a couple of specific ways. Here's where this falls into a unique moment that you and I find ourselves in. We live in the information age. There's lots of stuff that we feel like we need to know. We're sending out Joabs all the time, right? Go get this number. Go get this piece of information for me. I need to know that information has become to us like oxygen. And so we install all kinds of apps. We've got Joab apps going out into the land and gathering every kind of piece of information we can possibly have. We got social media stuff. We need to just know who went on vacation last week. Where did they go exactly? And were they happy? Uh, who's eating what? I don't know why we need to know that, but apparently we do. Please take pictures of your food before you eat it and, and let all of us see it. It will do something for us. I'm not sure what. Uh, there was a day in my life, I'm old enough to remember, that if you wanted to find out a little bit about what was going on in the world, you could, you know, come in from playing outside and watch Walter Cronkite for 30 minutes. You had 30 minutes to hear about the universe. That's all you had. And then you had tomorrow. And then at some point... Uh, they decided, let's go live and watch OJ run from the law back in the 1990s. And then instantaneous news was born after that. Oh, we need to know everything going on right now in the entire universe all the time. And we all bought into it. And we installed a bunch of Joab apps that said, hey, Joab, go out and find me everything that there is to know. I need to know everything, everything about everything. Bring me the numbers. And we're living in that came across a thought this week. I'm going to share from a blog post from a man named Kerry Newhoff. And he says two things here that I think are so hostile to you and I ever having a prayer life. And it has to do with our Joab apps and what we're seeking in this world to know at the expense of the unseen things that there is to know. He says this, call it compassion fatigue indifference, or whatever you want to call it, you weren't designed to process everything you're processing. It leaves you feeling numb. Can I get an amen? amen. How many more war stories, kidnappings, murders, neglects, abuses, wildfires, natural catastrophes. How, how many more can I swallow in one day without at some point having to become indifferent to them all? You know, sometimes these stories, they just rip you wide open and your emotions then pour out on the floor. But you can't watch the news like that for long because you'd be an emotional basket case. 
you have to begin to desensitize yourself and detach yourself. But the, the problem is when you begin to do that, the real life stories from the people who are in your life, you've already learned to numb yourself from so much information so that somebody around you is going to go through an issue and maybe it's going to affect you and maybe you're just worn out and exhausted by being worked up about every human suffering event that you've been digesting for the last 24 hours. Can I just tell you, numb people don't pray well. You know what's mysterious about the numbness? Is where is it coming from? Too much information. I don't need to know everything that my apps are telling me that I need to know. And if I want to pray, I might need to take that into account. Now, here's the other concerning thing that's happening. This is very concerning for me. I'm talking to too many people who sound this way. He goes on and he says, this is, he wrote a blog post, why I'm changing my mind about technology. He says, so much of social media these days is angry. And what isn't angry often seems crafted to be jealousy-inducing or self-promoting. Hate, narcissism, cynicism, insecurity, and division fill our feeds. I won't bore you. There was a book I came across written by a secular author called The Chaos Machine. And it, and it presents the idea that the guys who build these apps, they have learned that one of the only ways to get you to pay attention to what they're saying is to install anger, outrage, conflict, division. This is, this is the diet that you're going to get in these platforms. Because if it's not that, you glance over it. If it's not that, you don't pay attention to it. So we're being taught to feel a certain way. And we're getting to a place where we don't hardly respond to anything unless our emotions are just whacked out and I'm ready to kick somebody to the curb, man. I am so, man. Um, can I tell you that's, not going to do well in a prayer closet. And, and, and here's the great concern. It's teaching us how to feel. And more and more Christians are more in touch with being angry, conflicted, critical, harsh than ever. Than ever. You know, our need before God is being messed up by our feelings. We live in a time frame where I think the enemy has found a way to short circuit getting to our feelings. I don't think we think much anymore. I think we feel first and then we think a little bit after that. And then we feel and then we think a little bit after that. This is going to sound strange, but I, I think we need to learn to feel differently. If we're going to be God's people, and we're going to pray. Right? I'll, I'll, say, I'll say it this way. I got saved at the end of the 70s, you know, coming out of alcohol abuse, drug background. Uh, my definition of high was very different than this one. 
Anybody else a drug culture guy? Um, if I were to say, if I hadn't said that just now, and I were to say, hey, how many of you guys are high on Jesus? Right? I'm, you know, some of you hippies would be like, yeah, man, yeah. Um, but there is a sense that, that we're high on God. But you do get the high I learned to get by the Holy Spirit and the word of God didn't feel like the drug-induced and the alcohol-induced high. I used the same term. They didn't exactly feel the same way. I needed to learn to feel high for a different set of reasons and experiences in my life than what I had known before. Can I just tell you, you are being raised by algorithms and apps. You're going to need to learn to feel differently. You're going to need to learn to tap into something else that doesn't beat its way to your emotions at such a level that you are so angry, so critical, so against. And then trying to figure out how to, how to walk in the kingdom of God and how to get along with others and how to pray together. God's way of feeling our way through life is different than that. And so we, we are, we are in a dangerous, dangerous place. But this morning, I just wanted to install something in us. As we, as we study Jesus' great prayer in John chapter 17, the Son of God begins this adventure that we call discipleship on planet Earth, following his work. And he begins by praying. And you and I are in a place where I think we need to recognize there is more to life than meets the eye. I need to see some of those more things. Those things will cause me to pray, to look to God, to not be so natural minded that I'm taking a census from the next app to tell me how to feel about that news story or that political decision or that financial report from Wall Street. Lord, tell me how to feel in this moment right now. Tell me what to pray for in this moment right now. Let's stand up together. Lord, each of us are living a life that you have purpose for us. We're not King David, but we're in our own story that you have made and written and invited us into. And there are these then moments in our story too. Lord, this morning is perhaps a then moment for some folks that are here gathered trying to do life, trying to find a life that matters and that's meaningful, trying to find some healing from things in the past, hoping that something that they could do for themselves would fix it, would fix the way it feels, would fix the disappointment, would fix the trauma. This morning, Lord, they are here hearing you say there is more to your life than what meets the eye. There's an existence in your life that God longs to give to you. 
It's when God gives you his very life, his spirit it comes to dwell in you. It's invisible. It's an inner interaction that God gives. It's a breath in scripture. You can't see a breath. It's God breathing his life into you. There's something unseen on the inside that needs to be fixed only by the presence of God. So if you're here this morning or you're watching by live stream, your days have been consumed with trying to fix the hurt, trying to fix life, trying to get life to make sense, trying to overcome the thoughts and the hurts from the past, trying to find something to live for that's rewarding and good. This morning, the living God tells you there's more to your life than what meets the eye. There's a life that only he can give to you. And he offers it to you this morning. You can come to him. He wants to give you his spirit. Come to him this morning. To do that, he had to send his son to take your place. To take your sin. To remove it as an obstacle between you and God. And he did that at the cross. God gave the life that he would give to you in the resurrection to his son. He will give you that life today. If you'll put your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe today the day for you that you realize there is more to my life than these natural things. Yes, there is. Turn to Jesus this morning. He will give you the Holy Spirit to live in your life. You'll experience life from the inside out. You will be high in a way you've never understood before. I'm going to pray specifically for those of you who are following Jesus and you have been for a while. So that you can hear God say right now, there's more to life's moments and circumstances than what meets the eye. There's more to your moment and your circumstance than what meets the eye. I want to pray first for those who are here this morning. You are are in a set of circumstances that have suddenly, like what we just read, suddenly Satan showed up and things changed. And you are in a moment where This morning, something went off when that was said. And you're realizing, man, this is not just natural things going on in my world. There are supernatural forces at work around my life. This moment has been weighty and unusual and threatening and powerful. All right, is that you this morning? Got to pray every person here who's in that place right now is in touch with that experience. God, I pray you take every believer right now who is in this dark experience of their lives, Lord, and you would give them a then moment, then David prayed. Then, God, would you convince a lot of us here this morning that we're in way over our heads? Because there's more going on here than what we can manage. There's more than our bank accounts, our energy, our intellect, our influence can pull off. God, we're going to need you to show up. You're going to need to do something here. Because there are angels around, swords drawn. There's an enemy who's opposing us. God, we need something from you 
in this moment. I want to pray for husbands and wives walking in marriage, struggling through a season of their life, early in their marriage, later in their marriage, wherever it may be. God, I want to pray for parents who are here this morning. Things with their kids just feel big and hard and broken and hostile. God, would you open up eyes to see beyond what I see? God, would you let ears hear something from you beyond what physical ears can hear? God, would you give some wisdom and insight into these moments in our lives beyond human intellect? I pray the Holy Spirit shows up with a voice to husbands and wives who are ready to call it quits. And they've given up a sense of hope they don't think anything could be changed and they have, they have looked to see what resources are available to them to do it in their own strength. We've got to pray for parents who are struggling to relate to their children, struggling to have faith for something that's gone bad between them. Lord, there's more at work here than just what they remember. There's an inciting devil at work. God, your purposes with angels around us are taking place. God, would you make moms and dads and grandparents here, God, would you fill them with awareness that causes them to pray, Lord? God, I pray for the elders here. I pray for our covenant group leaders. I pray for our ministry team leaders who are walking with people who are making decisions, who stare out at the events of life right now in this hour. Oh God, help us to have eyes that see something more than the human beings and the activity around us that's natural. God, give us eyes to see a real enemy on the playing field affecting our nation. Not just politicians, not just people but a real enemy. God, give us eyes to see that you are doing something in this hour. God, you may be standing between Washington, D.C. and heaven with a sword drawn. And what are we doing, Lord? Trying to figure out the next tax policy? Elect some official who will fix it all. Lord, if you pull your sword out on this nation... There won't be any resources or census that will save us. It will take the people of God crying out for your mercy and seeing your hand involved in this hour. Lord, it is dark in our day. Lord, can I say humbly, it is dark in our day and there were 10 men gathered on Friday for prayer. Ten men in a church of over a thousand people. Lord, 
Or would you help us to realize I don't need the next thing my little ding is about to tell me? My app wants to inform me of stuff that feels like it's so critical and so necessary. And Lord, I'm becoming so natural-minded, I don't even know when to call on you. God, would you make us a people for this hour? Would you make us a people who can stare into your purposes and pray and call on you to be in our midst, to be in our families, in our marriages, in our church, in our nation, God, in a way that's revolutionary and powerful. So Lord, in our hearts, as maybe we're tempted to skip prayer tonight, why pray? Why pray, Keith? Well, because there's more going on than what meets the eye. God, this we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.